I think that's that's something beautiful about that, and that's why the artist, I believe, is so important to a societal structure, is because we help people to see and see differently. Hello, print friends, and welcome to the 86th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on that podcast listening app of choice. You can also find PCL on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and you can find all of this and more at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon where generous, lovely, and charismatic print fans sign up at tiers that start at just a dollar a month. This is a great way to show support for PCL and help keep us bringing you printmaking content every week. We also have a new feature, a new extra thank you for people who are signing up at any tier. It's called Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are brief, short, all business, quick and dirty tips and tricks conversations with our guests. What's the least known best secret for registration? How did you go about learning chiaroscuro woodblock carving? If animals could talk, which one would be the rudest? This is technical printmaking nerd content at its finest. Check it out now through the link in the show notes. Also, Pine Copper Lime has merch. If you like funny t-shirts, if you like printmaking, if you like supporting the show, if you like confusing cashiers, check it out now through a link in the show notes. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your printmaking practice since 1997. Products like their brand new line of professional relief inks, Beginning with the flagship color, Super Graphic Black, which they developed in collaboration with printer and artist Bill Fick. Formulated with all the working properties that artists demand, these light fast inks roll out consistency, transfer beautifully, and clean up easily with soap and water. So if you want to take your practice to the next level, head on over to Speedball's website to see where you can pick up a can of your new favorite color. My guest this week is Steve Prince, an artist and educator based in Williamsburg, Virginia. Steve and I had an absolutely beautiful conversation. We talked about embodying the art that you make, how all the experiences around you, especially the uncomfortable ones, shape you, culture, care, and the benefits of traveling, and why we all need to just keep making. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to be the art you want to see in the world with Steve Prince. Hi, Steve. How's it going? It's going wonderful, Miranda. It's such a pleasure to uh, to connect. Yes, I am really excited to talk to you because I feel like I discovered your work through Instagram and it was just this light bulb moment of, wait, where has this person been? How did I not know about this person before? <laughs> It just it just seemed like um, I just saw a couple of your pieces and was just blown away by them and then was following you and you just seemed so like prolific and just every image is is just a stunner that I've seen from you and I'm just 
really excited to get to know you and your work more. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that. Yeah. So before we dive into some questions, would you mind introducing yourself just a little bit, as I like to ask my guests to do, and just let people know who you are and where you are and what you do? Well, my name is um, Steve Prince. Um, I am living in Williamsburg, Virginia, and I, I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, and that's where I grew up at, and I went to Xavier University of Louisiana for undergrad, concentrated, I got my, um, my BFA from there, and then I went on to Michigan State uh, for graduate school, and I got my MFA there in printmaking and sculpture. Mm. And over the course of my career, I've, I've been primarily an educator um, in terms of, you know, how do you put the, the bread on the table, so to speak. But at the core of me, I am an artist. And uh, currently, I li- like I said, I live in Williamsburg, Virginia, and I, I'm the director of engagement and distinguished artist in resident at the Muscarelli Museum at William and Mary University. And that's a post I've been holding for about two and a half years. Wonderful. And then I also know that I think congratulations are in order for you as you have just uh, been awarded the Engage Art Contest Prize. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, yeah, that was, uh, it, it, it was, I was awarded about a month ago and um, right now all the kind of promotional stuff has been, you know, flooding the airwaves and I've been getting different interviews from different people and so forth. And um, it, it was a, definitely a tremendous honor to be able to receive recognition for your work and what you do in the everyday and for someone to, to recognize it and, and call it some of the top work that's being created out there in that competition and, you know, also, you know, back it up with throwing you some cash. Yes. That's always a great thing. <laughs> it's always, always very nice when, when we can uh, get a little bit of, of, of money in exchange for all of our efforts as people in the arts and as creators. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background? So you said you grew up in New Orleans. Um, can you tell us what role art had in that part of your life? Well, one of the things that I've said, you know, oft times as it relates to my background, I was a person um, that knew exactly what I wanted to do for my future. Um, I knew ever since I was five years old. And um, and as the story goes, you know, I remember being a five-year-older and living in the house that I was born in. It, did, it turned out to be a house that I grew up in mainly, but um, my, my father was a, was a collector of encyclopedias. And we had maybe like three or four sets of them. And I, I know that that makes me a dinosaur now because encyclopedias have been replaced by Google. But nonetheless, <laughs> we had a bunch of them in the house. And so I used to go over there and pull them off of the shelf. And the thing that, of course, that captivated me and the encyclopedias that he had in the house was that they were full of these beautiful pictures. And this particular day, I pulled off the shelf the letter M. And I was flowing through there and I was looking inside of the book and then I hit the name Michelangelo. And I saw this um, this image of Sybil, which was one of the characters on the, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Mm. And I was so enamored by the picture that I tore it out of the encyclopedia. And then I went and got some typing paper and I got a pencil and I tried my best to copy that drawing. And I was drawing it piece by piece. And then my sister came over my shoulder and she went, Ooh, Steve, I'm going to tell mom. <laughs> and of course, 
the iconic response, what, 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 I didn't do it. It wasn't me. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That, um, that sounds right. Of course, all the, all the evidence is in my hands and I'm sitting there with the book and, but I remember, you know, soon after going to, you know, elementary school and of course that question you get asked by teachers to stand up to introduce yourself and say, who, who do you want to be when you grow up? And my response for many years, I said, I want to, I want to be like Michelangelo. Mm. So that, those are my earliest memories, you know, of saying it. And then, you know, as I'm growing up, the, one of the key things that ended up happening is, is that you had, you know, I had this drive within myself to want to become an artist and make this work. But then I had this affirmation outside of me from my friends and from my teachers and from my household that was very creative. And that was in that that encouraged that creativity so i had no point throughout my entire career that i ever hear those words a negative words that basically say you're going to starve as an artist right. in my ecosystem um i always people will say oh, oh steve's an artist you know when a teacher would call out and say hey who in here can make a bulletin board i didn't have to raise my hand the whole class pointed me out it said steve mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and that's i literally that's been my path the my entire life is I've been, you know, without many times without me saying a word, people will call me out and pass my name on. And it's like this word of mouth kind of thing that's been going on, you know. And, and of course, as an artist, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm definitely an extrovert. So I I approach it, you know, and I guess in some terms you might call it aggressively, but I, I'm I'm proactive. I want to create. I want to make I want to connect. You know, I want to deposit this work within the societal structure. I want to speak about things, you know, mm-hmm. so that, that's what drives me. And I've been this way all my life. <laughs> I think that's that's actually a wonderful characteristic for an artist to have, because I think artists do get that stereotypical locked away, tortured soul uh, image that portrayed in the media. But to really be out in the world, to, to see your work you need to be the one who's the driving engine behind that. You know, if someone has to, you can make all the most beautiful images in the world, but someone has to, in this day and age, photo them and put them somewhere where people can see them. Otherwise, they're just, it's just a a closed loop of you making for you. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, just to add on to that, you know, I have been, I've been really blessed with the ability to speak, you know, very clearly about my work. And I, I know it inside and out. And I develop and I create from that kind of passion, you know, in terms of I'm thinking constantly as not only about the symbolic information that I'm embedded with into the piece, but I'm also I'm just having a constant conversation with the work as it's being developed. And so when I go before people and I do talks, you know, I mean, just when this whole pandemic started mm. and I'm not exaggerating, I've done over about 40 lectures and, um, you know, and all these have been on Zoom and I've just been doing these talks in colleges and, and high schools and programs and, you know, talking to, you know, doing, you know, all kinds of different projects. I've been teaching workshops and it actually just ramped up, you know, in terms of just my whole life and just expression within this medium. And, um, I'm not shy about speaking up about my work because I, I feel I'm the best person can speak about it. You know, not not just someone else with a keen mind or keen eye could not say some things that I didn't that I didn't see, which I've had people write about my work and say some beautiful things. And I was like, wow, I love what you said. You know, it's a beautiful portrait that you extracted from the work. But ultimately, I know I can speak the work best. 
Yeah. I always think that's such an interesting question about art, about, you know, where the the meaning of it lies. You know, is it is it in the artist's intention? Is it in how it's received? Is it in, you know, its legacy after the artist has passed on? And so that idea that that you can be kind of the best voice for it and the best advocate, I think is really true. And then there's also that whole other interesting side of the life of these objects that you make that go out into the world. And when you're not around, they're just speaking for themselves. And people can have different, whole different uh, relationships with them that you maybe weren't able to foresee. Absolutely. I think that's beautifully put. I was speaking at this Midwest college four or five years ago, and I was called to this college to speak to the students about me being an artist, but also an artist of faith and so and all these kind of things. And, and then also talk to them about, you know, move from an undergrad structure, possibly to grad school or out in the marketplace and trying to make it as an artist. Mm. And I have a lot of insight on all those different levels. So I was sharing with the group and then a, a good portion of my talk was fixated upon me talking about my work and then laying out these symbols and these stories and these narratives. And, and then a lot of my work is, about, is really challenging you and pushing you and pushing not, not just you, but it pushes me. And um, so I get to the end of it, you know, to the Q&A portion. And then there's this there's this professor in the back of the room. And he basically say, raised his hand. So I said, yes, sir. So he's like, you know, you know, I was listening to you talk and so forth. And, 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 and you know, when I went to school and one of the things that happened in school is that, you know, we were taught that the art the artwork should speak for itself. Mm. And you and you did a lot of talking about your work and going into all these details and talking about the stuff. And I'm just trying to reconcile this in my mind. And so, um, and he said, I just want to know what you think about that. And, you know, as it relates to this idea of artwork speaking for itself. And then you, in the contrast to you doing a lot of talking about it. So I said, thank you for your question and your statement. And I said, you know, the first part I started with was I said, well, I, I, I hear and I understand that whole notion of the artwork speaking for itself. Mm. I said when I was in grad school, I remember that very clearly in that particular space where my fellow classmates, you know, they really work from that tradition. And I kind of learned it, you know, and how to how to navigate within it. And I, I work within that that structure. I said, but my undergraduate experience at Xavier University of Louisiana, which was an HBCU or Historically Black College and University down in the South was very different. My experience there is that when we were in the studio and we were having conversation and we were talking about artwork, it didn't just fixate upon just the making of a, of a beautiful image. We talked about everything. Mm. We talked about relationships. We talked about politics. We talked about sports. And you just name it. All these things collided together in that environment. You know, we talked about, um, you know, all, all these different, any current issue, past issues, history, everything came out in that space. And it was really just open, dynamic space that I just was just clamoring to get back to every time. Because sometimes we have like these three, four day arguments about stuff. It just keeps going. You know, that's what it was like. It was rich. And then I likened that whole idea. I said, you know that space by me being at Xavier University was very much like being in my house. Hmm. It reminded me what it was like inside of our kitchen. It reminded me what was around our kitchen table. It reminded me of the food on the stove that was going and my mom and my sisters and my aunts would come over and these conversations would happen. And it would just be this rich rue of, of, of interactions that would happen in that space. And I said to the, the gentleman and to the audience, I said, 
I would hope that as I speak to you, that you hear the traditions where I come from. And as I respect that tradition of the artwork speaking for itself, I come from a different one. And I hope that you respect that tradition, which is very much embedded within the oral tradition, mm. you know, speaking about these issues. And I said, my friend, I said, my, my artwork, yes, it speaks for itself. But, but guess what? I do too. Mm. That's what I shared. And that's what I think about that idea of speaking for itself. Like, don't deny the artist who is ready to speak and talk about yeah. the intricacies of the work. Allow that to happen. You know, because that is another layer to my art that can get missed is that I am the art. I am the embodiment of it. Those strokes, those cuts, those prints, that pressure that was done by me. It was not done by a surrogate. You know, I understand every intricacy of the piece. I knew how it rolls up on the ink. I know what the ink smells like. I know what the tools feel like when I cut and I angle and I dive into the, the matrix. I know every intricacy of it. Let me tell that story because I think people will really enjoy to hear that level of depth and understanding. Ah, uh, Steve, you gave me goosebumps. <laughs> that's just so like that's just so beautiful. Like that hearing you talk about how particularly with the medium, you know, like uh, like the relief carving, it's just this physical act where you're you know you're diving into the medium and how it's it's your body engaged in the making process and so you are the art oh that was just so beautiful thank you for sharing that story indeed indeed <laughs> yeah and and i think it is really really significant what you're saying about you know challenging those assumed hierarchies and and structures about how we engage with art you know saying yes. that like like this is how it is the way it is how it is because this is the way it's always been done you know the art must speak for itself and it's like why though well you know like who who made that story that's not my yeah. story you know and <laughs> you know and that you were yeah. able to to sort of push back against that and 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 really question these things that are in the art world that I think people don't, you know, they just, they just assume they're like, well, I was told this. So I, I'm telling you this and this mm -hmm. is how it happens. But yeah. but yeah, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. No, I mean, just in that, in that moment, you know, later I felt the, the depth of it in the offense of his statement mm -hmm. in the moment I didn't, I just addressed it. I just, I was able to, to, to break it down in such a way that, that I, I think that, he could understand very clearly, you know, that I laid before him an understanding that these are traditions and they all viable, I, I think. But open yourself up to, to hear a different way. And if I'm different from what you've experienced, take me in. And because I've done that before, when I left the South and went North and I had to take in that experience that was very much in diametric opposition to who I thought I was. You know, and who I thought I should be and how I thought my environment should be. And that that's what you learn when you travel. You know, as you mm -hmm. talked about you know, going to these different places, you know that, you know, you can't be that same person that you were at those. I mean, to, to a large degree, you are that same person, but you are altered by the surroundings and the, by the rhythms, history and the culture and the, the norms and so forth. And you got to pay attention to those things because you can do something that you think is already nice and regular, but just be completely offensive, mm -hmm. you know, to be in that, that again is about culture care, I think, and, and paying attention to your neighbor and, and listening, 
and watching and learning and being respectful, but knowing that you're going to make mistakes. But I think that when you're moving and operating in that level of respect, I think the person that may see you make the mistake or see you make the faux pas, whatever it may be, they can receive it and they know that you are genuine in your heart. Yeah, if 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 we can, you know, connect on that really human level and understand that for a lot of a lot of it, like these these rules, these these ways that we're sort of taught, like this is how something is done. This is better than this. This is uh, this is offensive. This is not, you know, that's that's cultural, that's societal. But, you know, there's, uh, you know, in, in Thailand is as a deeply Buddhist country. And there's a lot of uh, empathy taught in in Buddhism as a faith, and you know one of there's a mantra that's something like you know if you find yourself at odds with someone you you say I am a human being and I wish to be free from suffering, and you are a human mm. being and you wish to be free from suffering, and we have this mm. in common. We both want to be safe, and like it can kind of shatter some of those stories that we tell ourselves about you're you and you're me and that's somehow a problem <laughs> you know yeah. yes yeah yeah yes and that's rich that's rich i mean it's so much to be learned from the the faiths of this world and they they enrich us they inspire us they they cloak us they guide us they do all these things for us and it's 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 always just remaining open and sensitive and i, I think that the artists, I think we we understand that because, um, or we understand that very well because we we are sensitive to material, we're sensitive sensitive to our nature that's around us, we are sensitive to the feelings and the empathies that we may feel from a person as we talk and mm. as we interact, and those things that sensory nature, you know, like as you you, you said earlier about this idea of the that tortured artist, mm. I think a lot of it goes into just that, you know how deeply I feel about some things. You know, when I see stuff happen on television or I read things in the paper or, or some book I've read or whatever, and, and I'm moved by it. You know, I'm moved by it so much to the point where I'm, I'm compelled to create something and, and to, to document it in this visual text. I think that's, that's something beautiful about that. And, and that's why the artist, I believe, is so important to a societal structure. Mm. It's because we help people to see and see differently. Yes. Um, and we, we take the everyday thing and we show you the, the beautiful complexities of something that may seem to be simple, but is loaded with so much more information if we just, just stop to, to, to break it apart. Yes. You know? And it's really wonderful that you sort of specifically in that moment, we're talking about the everyday and that sanctifying the ordinary that the artist can do because I really notice that within your own work, that you'll have these just these moments, you know, moments between two people, moments between a man and a woman, and it's just two people sitting across a table from each other. But what you've done with the composition, with the lines, with the movements, with the distortion, they just vibrate with emotion. You you just you capture the power of moments that happen every day in a lot of what you do, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like some of that imagery that you just, you kind of evoked, 
is tied into a series that I, I started a few years ago. It's called the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. I'm making an allusion to the Old Testament of the Bible, but I, I basically created a new thesis. And basically the, the, the phrase that I came up with is that uh, true love is like an Old Testament made new each day. And, and so when you think about a love that you profess to someone, and if you spend that time with them, then that love you profess to them is an old love. Mm-hmm. And you're constantly trying to renew it and go forward together. And so the, those couples and those images, you know, I, I kind of reduced it to a, a certain kind of almost like a script, whereas the couples in those images are always touching. Um, sometimes their look may look stoic, may look contemplative, may, may some in some instances, may there may be some angst. Um, but I think that that's just the nature of living with someone, yeah. you know, that's the nature of occupying a space with another person and going through all the things that you go through in your own individual body as male and as female or whatever, or whatever that couple may be um, in terms of that configuration. You still got two people that are individuals that are colliding in this space and they're trying to navigate it and make it work between the two of them. And so that's that's what that series is about. And so I, I played around with the angles, you know, ant's eye view, you know, or bird's eye view, or a fish lens, uh, elongation, exaggeration. Uh, the body begins to take on almost like a tapestry-like quality where it has this repetitious marks that are almost like, like quilt patterns on the body. So all those things I'm drawing on, you know, that, that becomes part of this kind of vocabulary around us that gets almost projected onto the human form in this three-dimensional structural space. You know, that's what I'm drawing on. Yeah. When I was looking at them and going through particularly that series that, is, as you must say, is the Old Testament one, you know, being someone who is, you know, about to enter my third year of marriage, which I know is still quite new, but really I saw in that, you know, when you talk about like that, that angst sometimes and that contemplativeness, um, Mm -hmm. I saw myself and my own relationship in that because it is a difficult undertaking to say you are going to bind your life to this other person who has their own wants and desires and motivations and hopes and fears and baggage and traumas and you have all of your own and we're somehow going to put them together and try to make it work (laughs) because we love each other so much and we can't we can't not do it (laughs) and that's just those two people that's not including the family and the brothers and the siblings and the aunts the uncles Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Who have all of their baggage and trauma and hopes and fears and like they're all bringing it to all these interactions and this this idea of of a relationship like this of uh, as, as this sort of undertaking where these two people are, are coming together and really trying to make it work and and pushing through difficultness to build something that's bigger than the both of them. And yeah. I just really saw that in the way you captured these moments between people where they're connected, but there is that strife and there is that effort and there is that deep, deep, clear connection between them at the same time. It was just so beautiful. And I was like, yeah, 
that looks like <laughs> marriage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm so glad you, I mean, of course, a married person could understand it and see it. And, but our, our, not, I shouldn't say just a married person, a person, because some people are not necessarily married, mm-hmm. but they're, they're together. So they understand what that bond means yeah. when you're in a long-term relationship with someone. So I, I have to qualify that with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's definitely true. Yeah, although at least at least for me, I've personally felt the shift change when I got married, and I think it's because I was like I was like, oh, I can't bolt in the night anymore. I have to sit here <laughs> and work through this. You know, <laughs> I can't just. But it's I think that yeah, that's 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 part of it, and it's um, yeah. it's been a surprisingly. Like I didn't, I didn't think of marriage as an undertaking that leads to a lot of personal growth because that's not the story that you're told. You're told they lived happily ever after, but it actually, yeah. it actually is quite an invitation to improve oneself just in order mm-hmm. to make your life happier with another person. So it's, it's mm-hmm. all of it. I, I saw in those, those incredible images. So thank you for those. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to circle back for a minute when you're talking about being an artist of faith mm-hmm. because. I, I love this idea. I love the idea of, of faith and how it relates to creative energy, the connection between faith and art that you see since time in memoriam, that there's that connection there. And I do think it's something that people sometimes can be kind of reluctant to talk about because there are a lot of people who do have baggage around faith or had negative experiences with traditional church structures or religious structures of any kind. But, you know, I I think that faith and creation are really closely bonded and and that it doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily, you know, necessarily have to follow uh, like an organized religious structure for people to kind of tap into that. And it's something that I, I just am fascinated by this idea of, and I'd, I'd love it if if you could speak to that a little bit. Absolutely, um, that's a really big question. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, I, 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 I was formulating in my mind how it would respond to you and uh, where would I start? So I, I guess I'm back to New Orleans mm. um, because uh, so much, you know, as any psychologist would talk to you, your, your baggage or whatever the issues you have goes all the way back to your childhood. Right. And so, you know, growing up in New Orleans, New Orleans is very much a Catholic city. Um, at least it definitely was when I was there. I'm not sure if it's shifted at all, but I'm, I'm assuming that it's still the same. I was I went to Catholic schools from kindergarten through college. And when I was in elementary to eighth grade um, and a little bit into ninth grade, I was an altar boy. And um, so I served, you know, in the church right beside the priest and, you know, did all kinds of things from mass to stations of the cross to funerals to weddings. I did it all, you know, as, as relates to the church, you know, and was there on six o'clock in the morning services, many a day, almost falling asleep on the on the on the pulpit, <laughs> you know, to um, services during Lent to everything, just all these different services uh, that I was involved in. And then I got to high school, you know, which was like a Catholic school and, you know, nuns were in my, in my life. And I mean, all the way through high school, I only had maybe one no, two male teachers mm-hmm. to that point through high school. And I got to college and I went to Xavier University of Louisiana, which is the only black Catholic college in the Western Hemisphere. So I ended up going there 
And I went through all those shifts that you said, you know, like, you know, where I started to kind of break from the church and I was having some issues with Catholicism and with the doctrine. And, you know, one of those areas I was having a little trouble with was one of the one of the areas that my sister was kind of arguing against is about the role of the woman within mm. that Catholic church. And then I remember uh, there was a key moment in high school. So I jumped back away from undergrad, but I was in high school and I was in this civics class. And um, every day our civics teacher would have an individual go up to the front of the class and read a scripture before class started. So he had this podium with his Bible on it. And so he would call somebody up. And then this one particular day, one of the female students in the class raised her hand and said, Mr. Leave his name blank. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> he said, um, why don't you choose any um, girls to come up and say uh, the scripture? And it was like, a, you know, that and everybody looked. Yeah. <laughs> But it's like, it, it, we just we weren't ready for it, that she would ask this question. So we all, you know, the whole class turns, looks at the teacher, and he turned red in the face, and then he gave this explanation to basically say that, you know, he said something about the disciples, and that they were all men, they were followers of Christ, and, and whatever, and this was supposed to be, and, and she was like, you know, then she just argued back and said, well, women can't be filled with faith and can't do those things just like men do. It's like, what makes us different? And and then he just like, and then finally he just like, you know, this is my class and you're going to do it the way I say to do it and it's yeah. going to be this way. And and then she barked back at him and then he kicked her out. And then everybody's in the class is like, it was just like silent. You know, everybody's looking. And then he like slammed his book on the desk and he just like, get your books out or whatever. And, um, but that thing, was etched in my memory that moment. And I, I remember the conversations that we had at lunch about what took place in that class. Mm-hmm. And I started talking about things that I hadn't thought about. I didn't, I never thought about it up until that point. This is like, I was a, I was a freshman in high school. So I was altar boy. And I never thought about the fact that there were no women or girls that were, t- were holding that role um, from the pulpit to the altar boy. There was none, yeah. you know? And um, so that was, that was part of the challenge, but Ultimately, through it all, you know, and through my journey, I understand the human frailties. I understand the the human imperfections. And I understand that when it comes to faith, we're the ones who mess it up. Mm, (laughs) Yeah. We're the ones who mess through it. We're the ones who use it for our own gain. And we're the ones who take it and, and flip and twist the doctrine and we delete words and we flip meaning and we make it mean whatever we want to. That's where the problem is at. It's in humankind. And that that's where the frailty is at. So the faith is the faith. And that what you read is to be true. And you know what's true. And you know what's right. You literally can feel it. Mm. And you know when you don't do wrong. And you if you put something in your brain enough to justify it, then you will believe that in that lie. Yeah. And um or or, or in that untruth. Or you will keep a blind eye to certain issues because you don't want to take that time. To think hard and solidly about it, you know, like, you know, that was a quote by Martin Luther King, you know, rarely do we find men who willingly engage in hard, solid thinking. There's an almost universal easy answers and half-baked solutions. Mm-hmm. Nothing pains some people more than having to think. You know, mm-hmm. I've taken those words apart, you know, and um, so fast forward. You know, when I talk about my faith, it is embedded within the philosophical structure of my work, which it draws upon the New Orleans jazz funeral. And if you think about the New Orleans, you know, it's broken up into two parts. The first part is called the dirge, where the mournful tune is played for the person that's being laid to rest. 
And once you get to the gravesite and that person is placed in the ground, the music moves from a mournful tune into a celebratory tune. And that celebratory tune is called the second line. The second line has multiple meanings. The one thing may come to mind, you would say, well, if there's a second line, then what's the first line? The first line is your life here on earth. The second line is the afterlife. Mm-hmm. But let's think about that same concept in the natural. The first line is the family that's associated with the person that is being laid to rest. Whereas the second line is the community and the cousins and the family that are in the community that comes out and girds the first line in support of that loss. And so I thought about that idea from a philosophical way in terms of my work is about a lot of my work deals with the dirge deals with those hard issues, not just simply about things that are dead and dying. It's dealing with those issues that we have around us, whether it be on a micro level or on a macro level that we grapple with on a daily basis, whether those things that we deal with internally or those things that we deal with in family or those that we deal with in our community or that we deal with in our nation or we deal with nationhood or with our planet. Um, Those are issues of the dirge. And the issue is, is if we confront those issues of the dirge, then I believe we can move to a space that is akin to the second line and we're still alive. And so therefore, there has to be this transference. There has to be the process of dealing with the hurt and the pain and then burying it and then allowing for a new relationship to birth itself in that moment. And so if somebody can do that from a spiritual level to say that they are spiritually saved, to go into the water and use the water as like this kind of cleansing ambiotic fluid fluid that washes away your sins because you profess it out of your mouth. And then you are now saved, not perfect, but you're you're spiritually on a track where you're trying to right yourself and you're trying to rid yourself of a way in which you thought that was damaging not only to yourself, but to others. That is an idea of salvation. So it's a process. So the dirge is a process. The second line is a process. And it's not to say that you're just going to simply deal with the dirge and you move to the second line and you stay in this place of kumbaya. Mm-hmm. It is also to say that you might flip back to that dirge at times, but you got to go back to the process to get back to the second line. And so that's what my work does. So at no point, if no matter how harsh the image I may deal with or harsh, how harsh the history I may grapple with, I always put a, 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 a spark of hope in my work. In many instances, I even begin to help point the way I think we should go. Not to say that it is the way. I'm trying to think and trying to envision. I'm trying to imagine who we could be. That's what I'm trying to go towards. That's That's so interesting to talk about, to hear you talk about sort of pointing the way and having that that spark of hope in your work because, you know, we talked about a bit of your series about the Old Testament, which is this very kind of one-on-one, two people in the world, making their way in the world images. But you do also have some really heavy images as well um, that I'm guessing are not part of that series. That's a sort of a separate, a separate branch. I want to say that... <clears throat> It is part of the series a little bit, not overtly. It's it's more subtle. That series is an interesting shift in my work because when you look at it, 
you mostly see the tenderness that's displayed between the couple. Now, I'll give an example of a piece that that looks pretty benign on the surface, but then if you dig a little deeper, and you don't have to go too deep, you just got to know the surroundings and to begin to understand the narrative. I call I made this piece that part of the series called Judges. Delilah didn't do it. In the image, there's um, a man sitting on a porch and a woman's behind him and she's he's kind of sitting between her legs and she's braiding his hair. They're sitting on a porch of one of those New Orleans shotgun houses, you know, and, um, and then off in the distance, not too far distance away from there's a street and there's an, an interstate that's passing right through the community. And then you on the other side of the interstate, you see more houses and structures over there. And so... From one level, when you look at this, you just see it looks like an everyday kind of happening. It looks like a hot summer's day and these guys getting his hair braided. Mm-hmm. But then the street in which they're on is called Claiborne Avenue. The section of town where I have them at is in an area called Treme. That's T-R-E-M-E. Mm-hmm. is the oldest African-American municipality in the United States located in New Orleans. It is in an area called also, that they have an area in there. It's called Congo Square um, in Treme. Mm. So, mind, they're sitting at this spot by this bridge that in one point in history was not there. It came there when it was making the interstate go from the East Coast to the West Coast of the United States. And the communities that were affected deeply by the interstate in this path across the United States were black and brown communities. They were the ones who were disrupted because they used a law called eminent domain and it was able to seize their land and it was able to run this interstate and they did not put it through those areas where the affluent lived. They pushed it through the areas where the poor lived because they knew that they had no rights and they knew that they did not know how to fight against this system. Because when that bridge was supposed to come through New Orleans, the original architects were running it through the French quarters. But the people said, absolutely not. You're not going to mess with our cash cow because that's where they make the money in New Orleans off of that section. So they ran it through the black community and disrupted and dismantled and pushed people back even further than they did with the laws and the issues that they had in relationship to African-Americans within that particular in New Orleans. So that piece shows that bridge there and it shows another street called Esplanade. Esplanade was the road by which during the time of slavery, when they came off the Mississippi River, kept transporting slaves to the slave holding house. That's the road that they went up and down, bringing them into the community. And the guy who is in her lap that's getting the hair done. He looks like he might be dead, but he's not. But I put him in a posture that plays off of a very old biblical construct which is called the pieta the slain christ in the lap of mary but if you remember the title i said it's called judges colon delilah didn't do it and i begin to even speak about the ways in which they talk about the black woman in relationship to the black man where she's emasculating him by the ways in which she's a selling within uh, education and way she's getting jobs and the black man is falling into the incarceration circles and he's dying off and all these kind of things and I'm debunking all those notions to say no that's not what's happening that black woman is very much a strong and sturdy figure who is working very hard and supporting of this man and supporting of the family and trying their best to deal with the issues that are embedded within that societal structure all that's in that piece, but it's just like a woman 
braiding the man of the braiding the hair of a man. Yeah, no, thank you for giving that just incredible example of how much you can fit into a singular image, and it's just the way you tell that story where you're, you know, you're, you're going all the way back to the Pieta and, you know, through um, colonialism and slavery in America to, you know, the building of the, uh, of the highway. And it all can fit into that one image, which as you say, is just an everyday scene. That's really yes. incredible that it's, and, and I think it, it speaks to in a philosophical way the fact that all of our everyday scenes in life are, whether we think about it or not, built upon all of these moments in the past, you know, built upon, you know, even like bringing it back to, to Christ in the way he changed the philosophy of the Western world, which we were then brought up in, that it has these structures that we live into, you know, the way that our cities and towns are built, you know, the fact that we we sit and do things where we sit and do them actually does have all of that history in there. It's just we're not either taught about it or we don't think about it in every moment, mm-hmm. but it's always there. It is. No, very rich, very richly there. And again, I think that's that's the role of the artist. That's what we do. We we bring all that stuff to the surface by by what we make and what we create. And I think one of the greatest, the greatest set of artists that I believe that do that so well are printmakers. Mm. You know, we live in the world of multiples, you know, and, and the fact that we're, we're making this element that's speaking, that we can speak to multiple people with this singular image that gets repeated over and over again. Of course, that is if we use, you know, we're not doing monoprint, mm-hmm. so monotype, you know, but nonetheless, there's something about that printmaking community, you know, that, that is so close knit yeah. and connected. And, you know, no matter what printmaking studio I've gone to across the country, and I've been, a, I've been to a few outside of the States, um, in Canada, down in the Bahamas, uh, down in Brazil, um, that I've, that I've been to, um, and in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, you know, every single place is the same. I mean, it's like this, you walk in and it's just like, you smell the ink and it's just like, you're connected instantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And then you see these pieces on the wall, you look on a drying rack and it's like, it's, it's universal, you know, it is so beautiful, you know, and I, I love it. And, you know, and, and, and I've been so fortunate in the past, like three years, I've done these residencies in these different places. Like I was at Notre Dame at the space called Segura Art Center, which is no longer there, but I spent like 10 days there. I was there. Then um, last year I was at um, um, I was at uh, University of Tennessee and I spent about 10 days there as well, just working in the studio, connecting with students. And then two years ago, I was at um, the University of Iowa. And I love being there because, you know, I was up at University of Iowa and one of my my printmaking idols uh, she went to school there back in like in the 40s. Oh. And she went there at a time when, you know, uh, her name was Elizabeth Catlett. And yeah. she went there at a time where uh, she couldn't even live in a dorm. Uh. They had a separate apartment for her off off campus where she stayed. and But she navigated all that. And she worked under the great Grant Wood, um, mm. you know, American Gothic. And that was one of her professors who went to bat for her in the end because they tried to deny her her MFA 
because they felt that her credits that she was taking, taking some engineering classes, they thought they didn't tie in. And he said, no, this makes complete sense. He said she's taking those engineering classes because she wants to be a sculptor. And that that level of understanding she's gaining from those classes is going to help, is helping towards her degree. So they definitely, they definitely follow suit, you know? And so I'm at this school, you know, I'm, I'm making work there. So I, 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 you know, I didn't sleep on the fact that I'm walking on the grounds where she walked at before, yeah. you know, the building where she went in terms of the art department, that building was closed off. Uh, it got flooded like some time ago and they built a brand new art department, but I walked around that building, you know, I stayed in one of Grant Wood's houses and um, and that's where I slept at every night, mm-hmm. you know, and just embodying that history and, and those people that were before me and to know that I worked within that lineage, that I'm part of that historical lineage and I'm drawing from them as people, you know, it's just so rich, so rich. Yeah, it's I love that theme that comes up in a, in a lot of these Pine Copper Lime talks is people talking about that sense of community and the fact that they can go anywhere in the world and they may not even share a language with someone, but they share the language of printmaking. They share yeah. annoyance if someone is gouging an ink can, you know, like, <laughs> like that's, that is the same no matter, no matter where you are. So yeah, yeah, you know, you're talking about being a part of your art and speaking for your art and that you felt that you kind of, you know, we're just sort of blessed with this gift that you can speak about it really, really well and in a way that engages people. And I know that anyone who has listened to the podcast thus far or listened to this episode, you know, up until this point is certainly going to agree with you. Do you have any advice for people who find that a bit difficult? Because I know some artists I've even talked to who I love their work, but I'll invite them on and they'll be like, no, 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 I can't talk about my work. And it's just it's just this kind of block or this fear. Uh, Do you have any words of wisdom as someone who has found a way to engage with your 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 work through verbal communication? There was a there was a point where I was really shy, um, and and again, again that shyness was really about insecurity mm. and worrying about how people look, looked at me. And uh, some of that shyness was about you know growing, and I was growing very rapidly. And I'm like six foot six, you know, so I'm tall. Mm. And um, and some of that was that that growth, that awkwardness that you were going through, and not comfortable in your own body. Some of that was about growing up being a black man in America. Mm-hmm. Some of that was up in New Orleans where there is an issue between, you know, dark skinned people and light skinned people. And there's this, that's a whole nother story, but you know, but I'm a, I'm a dark skinned male. And, and some of that was the issue too, as well. So I was grappling with all these different things. Um, some of it was just about some degree of repression that you feel within your household growing up in the Southern home, where it's a lot, it's very strict, a lot of rules but very much hardworking, dedication, all that stuff. And you have to have work ethic and, and you really pushed in those kind of areas. So, you know, that's a mix that everybody's going to have. It's going to be unique to each person that they have to navigate. But the word that I got to, that was, that I received, I, I think I was an undergrad and I was, I was going to speak at the school um, on the East coast and I was nerved out about speaking. And the person said to me, said, you know, are you going to talk about mathematics or English or science? Or are you going to go into any of those areas? I said, no. I said, what are you going to talk about? And I said, I'm going to talk about art. And I said, 
isn't that the thing that you like study and you do all the time? Isn't that the thing that like you really know better than all those other stuff? <laughs> and so that's what I would tell a person. It's like, you know, you know that subject. You know, yeah. all you gotta do is think about what you've done. Think about what you're doing and just talk on that. Don't go outside of it into some other areas where you're gonna feel even more uncomfortable speaking about it. Speak about what you're doing and just talk to that. And and people will receive that. You know, I've been a teacher and educator for many years. So I've worked with middle school to high school. I've taught at a community college. I've taught at a four-year private institution. I've taught at a four-year public institution. I've taught like 25 years now. Mm. And so for many of those years, I've worked with students to have them, you know, be able to do presentations, develop elevator pitches and so forth. And so I've worked with them in front of the other students. I say, close, somebody go close the door. And I said, you're in, you're in a safe space. And the safe space that you're in is with me and you with these other fellow students in here. I said, you're not under attack. And so you can speak about your work and I will stop you on those areas where I think that you may need to be stopped and mm. encouraged on. And then I'm going to really give you strong encouragement where I think the areas where I think you spoke really well on. And so there'll be times the student be talking, they'll be going, um, um, stop. Yeah. Take your time. Say what you want to say. Breathe. Relax. You don't have to say um every three seconds. Just relax. Say what you want to say. Say what you mean. Get it out of you. And when I talk to a student like that, it just relaxes them. Yeah. It, it puts them in a place where they feel comfortable and they feel that safeness. And I say, when you go before people, now people tell you all kinds of tactics, like look at the crowd and make like everybody's naked, like you're naked with them and all that mm-hmm. stuff. I don't do all that stuff. Um, what I do is when I go before somebody, I pray before I walk into a space and I pray to center myself. Mm-hmm. And I pray to get myself to move out of the way. And I pray that those things that are deeply set within me, that they can flow out of me in a fluidity before my audience and that they can connect with it. And I pray that those words and whatever I'm doing in terms of this work, that it would, if it's just one person in that audience or two or 2,000, however many, let it touch those people and let them be moved by this work. And let it do something, whether it be just in them talking about the work or there's some, some issue that they might be grappling with, let it intersect in their lives. So I know what art has done for me and how it's transformed my life. And so therefore, you know, don't harbor that gift. You know, let that gift out and share it in every part of you, every fiber of your being. And that's why I would encourage people. And then when I go into class and I'm teaching to the students and I'm saying, you may not be the most eloquent and the most, you know, be able to speak on it, whatever, but you're going to be able to speak with some level of competence and confidence that will be received. And everybody has different gifts. You know, I have a gift. This is a gift that I have to be able to talk the way I talk about my work and so forth. So I don't take it for granted. And nor do I flaunt it with some kind of level of arrogance. I I know that I know that a lot of other artists, you know, have told me over the years, I have enough affirmation to say, oh, Steve, you know, you speak so well about your work. And it says to me over and and I mean, of course, I've worked at it. And I'm constantly, I'm, I'm many times I, I, I you know, I, I bombed up on talking, at least mm-hmm. in my own eyes. I felt like I didn't do as well as I should have, or I said something I didn't, I didn't want to say, or, or I didn't elaborate on it. And I just, oh, I should have said this. And, you know, you do that. And that's what you do. 
And I, I'm, I have a thick skin, so I just say, well, it's, it's done was done. Just move on. <laughs> Make the next piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and I and I approach life like that. You know, you know, there's times you make this art piece and it's like, ah, it's not working. Right. Move on. Yeah. Get in the corner and pull out something else, and then get that groove going with something else. You know, just keep it moving. You know, make, create. Life is too short. Yeah. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. I think that that is the the perfect words to kind of wrap things up on. Is just to. Just keep moving. Don't get caught up in what you perceive to be your failures. Don't let your ego try to tell you a story about where you're supposed to be or what you did wrong and just keep making. I love it. Before we sign off entirely, uh, would Mm -hmm. you please let people know where they can find you, where they can see your work, where they can follow you out there on the World Wide Web? Yes, absolutely. So there's several places where you can find me. So I'm on Facebook, and of course, my name is Steve Prince. I am on Instagram, and you can find me there. And my handle is at One Fish Studio. So spell it all out O N E F I S H S T U D I O. And then my handle is also One Fish Studio when I'm on Twitter, but it's the number one, then Fish in studio write those two words out and then i'm sponsored by three different galleries one of them is called black art in america it's located in columbus georgia the other one is called zucot and it's spelled z-u-c-o-t and it's located in atlanta georgia and the third gallery that represents me is called stella jones gallery it's located in new orleans louisiana um, I'm in the process of courting a couple more galleries. So if you go to any one of those sites on like Instagram and Facebook, you will see those new spaces being added on to me where I'm showing. And then people can direct message me. Uh, if you just want to buy the artwork directly from the artist, I am here for you. You know, But I'm definitely part of uh, my galleries and spaces because they, they do things for me in ways in which it's very hard to do for yourself and trying to navigate and be the marketing and be the cheerleader and be... You know, I got to do the work, and um, so I, I'm very much appreciative of those galleries that represent me and um, that put me out in the marketplace. And I know, of course, I in turn help them out and keep their spaces going. So it's it's a, all about community, and that's what I believe that as an artist works and operates in. That drives me as an artist is connecting to that community, speaking about the community, making artwork about it, making artwork with it. So so important, so on. Wonderful. Well, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. And Steve, it has been an absolute pleasure. You've made my week. Um, This has just been such a great talk. And thank you again. Indeed. No, thank you so much. It it was absolute pleasure um, to to meet you, you know, to see you face to face. And and I I look forward to the opportunity to be able to share the studio time together and um, in the coming future. So I, I pray you, you know, the, the best of, of health and and both mental mind body and spirit as you continue to navigate your days and um, just continue to connect with other artists and uh, just that this this program can just reach so many people and I'm so honored to be able to be a part of it and and that um that you found me um, in in the wilderness and um, <laughs> <laughs> the wilderness of Instagram yeah <laughs> and so I'm so glad that our paths crossed and. Um, and I, I, just knowing you for a short period of time, you know, I, I can, I can sense you have a very fresh um, spirit, and so I'm just really 
uh, thankful and grateful to, to have met you on this journey and just looking forward to the ways in which we can stay connected and do work together. Oh, thank you so much for, for saying all that. I, I, I feel the, the same way. I think that uh, we're, we're both seekers on the journey and artist spirits. And I, uh, I think that hopefully this will be the beginning of more collaboration and friendship and all of that. I really like that. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Angela Pilgrim. We'll talk about the influence of the 1990s, making it without the connections of a university, and printmaking as perseverance. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.